Chapter 11 of Armageddon 2419 A.D. by Philip Francis Nolan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 The New Boss. We had ultraphoned our arrival, and the big boss himself, surrounded by the council, was on hand to welcome us and learn our news. In turn, we were informed that during the night, a band of raiding bad bloods, disguised under the insignia of the Altunas, a gang some distance to the west of us, had destroyed several of our camps before our people had rallied and driven them off. Their purpose, evidently, had been to embroil us with the Altunas, but fortunately one of our exchanges recognized the bad blood leader, who had been slain. The big boss had mobilized the full raiding force of the gang, and was on the point of heading an expedition for the extermination of the bad bloods. I looked around the grim circle of the sub-bosses, and realized that the fate of America at this moment lay in their hands. Their temper demanded the immediate expenditure of our full effort in revenging ourselves for this raid. But the strategic exigencies, to my mind, quite clearly demanded the instant and absolute extermination of the Sinsings. It might only be a matter of hours, for all we knew, before these degraded people would barter clues to the American Ultronic secrets to the Hans. How large a force do we have? I asked Hart. Every man and maid who can be spared, he replied. That gives us seven hundred married and unmarried men and three hundred girls, more than the entire bad blood gang. Everyone is equipped with belts, ultraphones, rocket guns and swords, and all fighting mad. I meditated how I might put the matter to these determined men, and was vaguely conscious that they were awaiting my words. Finally I began to speak. I do not remember to this day just what I said. I talked calmly with due regard for their passion, but with deep conviction. I went over the information we had collected, point by point, building my case logically, and painting a lurid picture of the danger impending in that half-alliance between the Sinsings and the Hans of New York. I became impassioned, culminating, I believe, with a vow to proceed single-handed against the hereditary enemies of our race, if the Wyomings were blindly set on placing a gang feud ahead of honor and duty and the hopes of all America. As I concluded, a great calm came over me, as of one detached. I had felt much the same way during several crises in the First World War. I gazed from face to face, striving to read their expressions, and in a mood to make good my threat without further heroics if the decision was against me. But it was Hart who sensed the temper of the council more quickly than I did, and looked beyond it into the future. He rose from the tree trunk on which he had been sitting. That settles it, he said, looking round the ring. I have felt this thing coming on for some time now. I am sure the council agrees with me that there is among us a man more capable than I, to boss the Wyoming gang, despite his handicap of having had all too short a time in which to familiarize himself with our modern ways and facilities. Whatever I can do to support his effective leadership at any cost, I pledge myself to do. As he concluded, he advanced to where I stood, and taking from his head the green-crested helmet that constituted his badge of office, to my surprise, he placed it in my mechanically extended hand. The roar of approval that went up from the council members left me dazed. Somebody ultraphoned the news to the rest of the gang, and even though the ear flaps of my helmet were turned up, I could hear the cheers with which my invisible followers greeted me, from near and distant hillsides, camps, and plants. 
My first move was to make sure that the phone boss, in communicating this news to the members of the gang, had not rebroadcast my talk nor mentioned my plan of shifting the attack from the Bad Bloods to the Sinsings. I was relieved by his assurance that he had not, for it would have wrecked the whole plan. Everything depended upon our ability to surprise the Sinsings. So I pledged the council and my companions to secrecy, and allowed it to be believed that we were about to take to the air and the trees against the Bad Bloods. That outfit must have been badly scared, the way they were burning the ether with ultraphone alibis and propaganda for the benefit of the more distant gangs. It was their old game, and the only method by which they had avoided extermination long ago from their immediate neighbors. These appeals to the spirit of American Brotherhood addressed to gangs too far away to have had the sort of experience with them that had fallen to our lot. I chuckled. Here was another good reason for the shift in my plans. Were we actually to undertake the extermination of the Bad Bloods at once, it would have been a hard job to convince some of the gangs that we had not been precipitate and unjustified. Jealousies and prejudices existed. There were gangs which would give the benefit of the doubt to the Bad Bloods, rather than to ourselves, and the issue was now hopelessly beclouded with the clever lies that were being broadcast in an unceasing stream. But the extermination of the Sinsings would be another thing. In the first place, there would be no warning of our action until it was all over, I hoped. In the second place, we would have had indisputable proof, in the form of their rep-ray ships and other paraphernalia, of their traffic with the Hans, and the state of American prejudice, at the time of which I write, held trafficking with the Hans a far more heinous thing than even a vicious gang feud. I called an executive session of the council at once. I wanted to inventory our military resources. I created a new office on the spot, that of control boss, and appointed Ned Garland to the post, turning over his former responsibility as plants boss to his assistant. I needed someone, I felt, to tie in the records of the various functional activities of the campaign, and take over from me the task of keeping the records of them up to the minute. I received reports from the bosses of the ultraphone unit, and those of food, transportation, fighting gear, chemistry, electronic activity, and electrophone intelligence, ultrascopes, air patrol, and contact guard. My ideas for the campaign, of course, were somewhat tinged with my 20th century experience, and I found myself faced with the task of working out a staff organization that was a composite of the best and most easily applied principles of business and military efficiency, as I knew them from the viewpoint of immediate practicality. What I wanted was an organization that would be specialized, functionally, not as that indicated above, but from the angles of intelligence as to the Sinsing's activities, intelligence as to Han activities, perfection of communication with my own units, cooperation of field command, and perfect mobilization of emergency supplies and resources. It took several hours of hard work with the council to map out the plan. First, we assigned functional experts and equipment to each division in accordance with its needs. Then these in turn were reassigned by the new division bosses to the field commands as needed, or as independent or headquarters units. The two intelligence divisions were named the White and the Yellow, indicating that one specialized on the American enemy and the other on the Mongolians. The division in charge of our own communications, the assignment of ultraphone frequencies and strengths, 
and the maintenance of operators and equipment I called communications. I named Bill Hearn to the post of field boss, in charge of the main or undetached fighting units, and to the resources division, I assigned all responsibility for what few aircraft we had, and all transportation and supply problems I assigned to resources. The functional bosses stayed with this division. We finally completed our organization with the assignment of liaison representatives among the various divisions as needed. Thus I had a headquarters staff, composed of the division bosses, who reported directly to Ned Garland as control boss, or to Wilma as my personal assistant and each of the division bosses had a small staff of his own. In the final summing up of our personnel and resources, I found we had roughly a thousand troops, of whom some 350 were in what I call the service divisions, the rest being in Bill Hearn's field division. This latter number, however, was cut down somewhat by the assignment of numerous small units to detached services. Altogether, the actual available fighting force I figured would number about 500 by the time we actually went into action. We had only six small swoopers, but I had an ingenious plan in my mind, as the result of our little raid on New York, that would make this sufficient, since the reserves of inertron blocks were larger than I expected to find them. The resources division, by packing its supply cases a bit tight, or by slipping in extra blocks of inertron, was able to reduce each to a weight of a few ounces. These easily could be floated and towed by the swooper in any quantity. Hitched to Ultron lines, it would be a virtual impossibility for them to break loose. The entire personnel, of course, was supplied with jumpers, and if each man and girl was careful to adjust balances properly, the entire number could also be towed along through the air, grasping wires of Ultron, swinging below the swoopers, or stringing out behind them. There would be nothing tiring about this, because the strain would be no greater than that of carrying one or two pound weight in the hand, except for air friction at high speeds. But to make doubly sure that we should lose none of our personnel, I gave strict orders that the belts and tow lines should be equipped with rings and hooks. So great was the efficiency of the fundamental organization and discipline of the gang that we got underway at nightfall. One by one, the swoopers eased into the air, each followed by its long train or kite tail of humanity and supply cases hanging tightly from its tow line. For convenience, the tow lines were made of an alloy of Ultron which, unlike the metal itself, is visible. At first, these tails hung downward, but as the ship swung into formation and headed eastward toward the Bad Blood territory, gathering speed, they began to string out behind and swinging low from each ship, on heavily weighted lines, ultrascope, ultraphone, and straight-vision observers keenly scanned the countryside, while intelligence men in the swoopers above bent over their instrument boards and viewplates. Leaving control boss Ned Garland temporarily in charge of affairs, Wilma and I dropped a weighted line from our ship and slid down about halfway to the under-lookouts, that is to say about a thousand feet. The sensation of floating swiftly through the air like this, in the absolute security of one's confidence in the inertron belt, was one of never-ending delight to me. We reascended into the swooper as the expedition approached the territory of the Bad Bloods, and directed the preparations for the bombardment. It was part of my plan to appear to carry out the attack as originally planned. 
about fifteen miles from their camps, our ships came to a halt and maintained their position for a while with the idling blasts of their rocket motors, to give the ultrascope operators a chance to make a thorough examination of the territory below us, for it was very important that this next step in our program should be carried out with all secrecy. At length, they reported the ground below us entirely clear of any appearance of human occupation, and a gun unit of long-range specialists was lowered with a dozen rocket guns, equipped with special automatic devices that the Resources Division had developed at my request, a few hours before our departure. These were aiming and timing devices. After calculating the range, elevation, and rocket charges carefully, the guns were left concealed in a ravine, and the men were hauled up into the ship again. At the predetermined hour, these unmanned rocket guns would begin automatically to bombard the Bad Blood's hillsides, shifting their aim and elevation slightly with each shot, as did many of our artillery pieces in the First World War. In the meantime, we turned south about twenty miles, and grounded, waiting for the bombardment to begin, before we attempted to sneak across the Han ship lane. I was relying for security on the distraction that the bombardment might furnish the Han observers. It was tense work waiting, but the affair went through as planned, our squadron drifting across the route high enough to enable the ship's tails of troops and supply cases to clear the ground. In crossing the second ship route, out along the beaches of Jersey, we were not so successful in escaping observation. A Han ship came speeding along at a very low elevation. We caught it on our electronic location and direction finders, and also located it with our ultrascopes, but it came so fast and so low that I thought it best to remain where we had grounded the second time and lie quiet, rather than get underway and cross in front of it. The point was this. While the Hans had no such devices as our ultrascopes, with which we could see in the dark, within certain limitations, of course, and their electronic instruments would be virtually useless in uncovering our presence, since all but natural electronic activities were carefully eliminated from our apparatus, except electrophone receivers, which are not easily spotted. The Hans did have some very highly sensitive sound devices, which operated with great efficiency in calm weather, so far as sounds emanating from the air were concerned. But the ground roar greatly confused their use of these instruments in the location of specific sounds floating up from the surface of the earth. This ship must have caught some slight noise of ours, however, in its sensitive instruments, for we heard its electronic devices go into play, and picked up the routine report of the noise to its base ship commander. But from the nature of the conversation, I judged they had not identified it, and were in fact more curious about the detonations they were picking up now from the Bad Bud land some sixty miles or so to the west. Immediately after this ship had shot by, we took the air again, and, following much the same route that I had taken the previous night, climbed in a long semicircle out over the ocean, swung toward the north and finally the west. We set our course, however, for the Sinsing's land north of New York instead of for the city itself. End of chapter 11